This is Vital Signs, a podcast on cutting-edge trends in health tech and the people shaping them. Today, we're super excited to be joined by Dr. Zeke Emanuel, a man who probably needs no introduction to our listeners, but I will give it anyway. Zeke is both an MD and a PhD in political philosophy, uh, is a practicing breast oncologist, and has had a lot of interesting stints on the government side, was the chair of Department of Bioethics at the NIH for a while, and then a special advisor for health policy to the director of the OMB from 2009 to 2011 during the Affordable Care Act, where he was a key architect. Now, he's a professor over at Penn, the vice provost of global initiatives there, and if you listen to this podcast, podcast. You probably read something that he's written a book, uh, an article. He is, is pretty prolific. Zeke, thanks so much for coming on the pod. Great. Nice to be here. Well, you know, to, to kick it off, I mean, you, you've kind of done it all in healthcare, a, a super interesting career. We'd love to hear a bit about kind of how you initially entered healthcare and then, you know, kind of married these two worlds of academia, the world of healthcare policy. How'd you kind of get the bio that we shared at the beginning? Uh, largely by accident. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, I'm not you know, there are some people, actually some of my daughters, very strategic. They sort of game out everything. <laughs> I am uh, the anti-strategic in that sense when it comes to my life. I don't game anything out. I keep pursuing the things that interest me. So when I was leaving college, my parents wanted me to go to med school. My father's an immigrant. He's a doctor. He came here with about 25 bucks in his pocket and a very nice pen. That's really everything he had. I was the eldest born of an immigrant who was a doctor, and I was good at science. It was inevitable that he would push me to medicine. <laughs> I didn't want to actually do medicine. I wasn't that interested. What did you want to do? Well, I was sort of, you know, incoherent is the answer to that. I didn't really know. I was drawn to philosophy. I was a sort of chemistry and philosophy major in college. I was drawn to public policy, but I didn't have the foggiest idea how to do that because my parents, you know, how do you go about trying to land a job in the White House? No idea. So I went to Oxford <laughs> to try to avoid going to med school and see if I like doing basic biomedical research. And I was moderately successful at Oxford, got three important papers, got a master's in science from them, but hated life at the bench. I didn't have a plan B, so I came back to med school. I started out my first year in med school and hated that. I found it a lot of memorization, very hierarchical. People weren't interested in debating ideas. They were interested in just stuffing information into your head. So the first summer I decided through chance, I met someone at the New Republic and got a internship down at the New Republic in Washington writing. Maybe I'd be, you know, like journalism. Well, I discovered very quickly that there were other people who were better writers than me, faster writers than me. And most importantly, I didn't like sort of reporting on what other people were doing. I wanted to be doing. I didn't have plan B again. Failure. So I went back to Harvard Medical School. But fortunately, through Marty Peretz, who was had owned the uh, New Republic, I had got a teaching job in social studies. So I was going to med school and then I was teaching in social studies, which is a very nice major at Harvard, does basically all the classic great books in uh, social sciences, political science, philosophy. So that, I loved it. Home run. <laughs> I, I finally figured out what I really liked. I liked teaching. I was, and I thought I was pretty good at it. The next year I taught in justice, Michael yeah. Stendel's famed Harvard course, Justice. And I was pretty good at that. Spent part of the summer creating a teaching manual for other teaching fellows. And I decided I'd take off and do a PhD in political philosophy and political science. A, a classic move and, in the middle of med school, right? 
Right, exactly. <laughs> so uh, basically, I finished med school in the sense that I took all the required courses. At Harvard, you only needed 15 months of clinical rotations. I did the 15 months of clinical rotations and then went off and did a PhD. By that time, I had a kid and it was very, it, you know, I was basically a flexible schedule. So that was good. And so it was uh, then figuring out what exactly interests me. You know, what interested me was end-of-life care. We were doing a terrible job in America. It hadn't broken out at a big public issue. There were articles every so often about it, but there wasn't a lot of research. I guess you you hadn't written your article yet. (laughs) Uh, Well, in thinking about how people wanted to die and how the medical system wasn't doing it right. And so that's how I started off my career. And you know, I discovered a, this is a really good issue, very value laden. We were doing a crummy job. I could understand, you know, I had a talent for reading legal decisions and being able to distill them for doctors and the lay public, discussing how we might do it better. And, you know, I went off to the races. And then I trained as a did medicine and then did oncology, because after all, oncology deals with all the big issues, end of life care, but it also deals with You know, these are incredibly expensive treatments we have. There's all this issue about informed consent and whether people are actually, you know, know, understand what they're doing. So it it was just both a challenge, but also had all the fascinating issues that I'd like to deal with. From someone who started with not liking med school going all the way through, like all the way through oncology, which is probably like one of the parts of the track, you know, as you seem to have done quite a lot in between. Those yeah. two things. I, if my plan B includes Harvard, I'd say I'm doing <laughs> pretty well. <laughs> thing, it was not doing it the usual way. It was to do it my way. <laughs> Believe me, it wasn't the usual way. And I was always, you know, some kind of outlier when they accepted me to my oncology fellowship. You know, everyone else, you know, empty PhD, hardcore, going to work in the lab and find the cure to cancer. And there's this guy doing, you know, medical ethics. So, so I guess riffing off that, you know, talking about writing pieces and kind of your journey through learning about end-of-life care, we obviously want to talk a little bit about your now infamous piece around uh, how we think about end-of-life care in this country, how we think about it for particularly 75, 65-plus population, etc. So I guess, like, just to level set, one, did you know the kind of reaction you were going to get when that piece came out? (laughs) And then two, have your views actually about the topic changed since that piece was actually written? And maybe for people who are listening, you can just give like the short version of like what the piece is about. Well, let's be clear. The title of the piece is Why I Want to Die at 75. (laughs) That has nothing to do with the piece. Uh, (laughs) Not my view. (laughs) My view is why I won't take life-sustaining medical interventions after 75. That's the first point. That's a less sexy title, though. Uh, Authors don't give their (laughs) articles titles. Editors do, and editors and authors' interests are not the same. Editors want to sell, and authors want to, you know, express their views. But the important point, or uh, uh, there are a number of important points. The first point is that this is a personal view. And the point of writing it was to express my view and to challenge others. All right, you don't have to agree with me. I don't need people to agree with me. I've got a very thick skin, thanks to my two brothers. I like disagreement. I like arguing with people. I learn things by having people disagree with me. I'm challenging you. Tell me how you want to live and how you're going to live at the end of your life. And for most people, they haven't thought about it. 
And to some degree, I would argue, many people are afraid of thinking about it. And the point of the piece is, here's my philosophy. There are two things, I think two things that drive me. One thing is what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of being dependent. I'm afraid of of being dependent upon other people to do things for me and to be debilitated. That is the worst, and especially mentally debilitated. So, you know, Alzheimer's is, is my great boogeyman out there. The second is, more recently, over the last five years, I've become very enamored of Ben Franklin, who I think is the most brilliant person ever born in the North American continent. But, you know, driving his life is contribution, doing things to make the world better. And I think that's a driving spirit of my life. It's something my parents, my grandparents instilled in me. And it's a drive. And I, not only do I fear being dependent and disabled and and debilitated, I also fear not being able to contribute. And, you know, I enjoy lots of things. Not all of them can contribution. They, you know, going hiking. I'm a big bike rider. I love to travel. I love to eat. I like to cook. But those alone would not make a good life. Those alone married to being able to contribute to making the world better does make a good life. But if that contribution can't happen, I just don't want to stay around to be around. Um, and so that's that was the philosophy. And then if you look at just human life cycles, you know, after 70, 75, people's contribution, ability to engage, development of both, you know, contribution to the world, but also avoiding debility and, and dependency goes down. And it goes down pretty fast. I don't want to be in that state. That's my philosophy born. Oh, and this is something I've thought about for, you know, if not 50 years, 40 years. And that article was an attempt to suggest why that's a very reasonable approach to leading a meaningful life. As you can tell, my goal is not a happy life in the sense of, you know, just piling on the pleasures or something. That has no mean, no meaning for me. And that, you know, if that's what is meaningful for you, you know, as my grandmother would say, Zeigezun, <laughs> uh, but that's not meaningful for me. And uh, I doubt it's actually meaningful for most people. I think that's actually a pretty empty life. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. I mean, I feel like these questions around end-of-life care so beautifully marry your, you know, political philosophy and, and philosophical background with, obviously, your medical background. And I feel like, you know, to your point, you've been thinking about a lot of this stuff for, for 40, 50 years. Obviously, like, as a society, we have, you know, a more uncomfortable relationship with a lot of these questions. And as someone who's been thinking about it and kind of at the at the forefront of it for a while, you know, I'm curious, one, how you've seen, you know, if at all, these conversations evolve from a policy perspective, and then two, even just from a doctor to patient perspective, do you feel like we've changed at all in kind of our willingness and receptivity to those conversations? I do. It does feel like a, it does feel like a natural extension, actually, to a lot of the value-based care conversations we have, too, where, like, what some patients think of as value is going to be very different than maybe what a top-down organization or a, or a provider thinks about value. So, you know, everyone has probably a different end-of-life scenario they want to be in, and it's it's not too dissimilar. So I'm, I'm sure there's some overlaps between those two. Yes. I, I, well, first of all, I do think as a country, we've done better. So I, you know, at one level, the glass is half full and getting higher. You know, fewer people die in the hospital, more people die at home. It's more of a conversation. The country has made quite clear, you guys may be too young, but the Terry Schiavo case was a major case in Florida. You know, the Republican Party piled in 
when the husband, after many years of her being on life support, said, you know, this is, she's not improving. She's still in a persistent vegetative state. Let's disconnect. And then, you know, they went up to the Florida Supreme Court and the Florida Supreme Court said, you know, the family, the husband decides. Then the U.S. Senate got involved and, you know, one of the worst decisions Senator Frist ever made was to get involved and look at a video and say, you know, anyway, the whole thing was a shit show. I don't know. Can we say that on your? Definitely. It was terrible. And the American public made really clear and the Supreme Court made really clear these are personal decisions. Politicians butt out. We have a way of making it. And it's really between the family and the doctor. And that's how those decisions should be made. That's progress. And I think the American public is pretty mature about this. Does that mean, you know, we can solve it? No. Does that mean the medical system has comprehensively improved? No. And in an article you didn't mention, I wrote about my father who developed a brain tumor at 92 and, you know, was admitted to the hospital because he had collapsed and they just found it. And, you know, I flew in from Washington to Chicago. And as I was arriving at the hospital, there was the neuro-oncologist and the neurosurgeon ready to treat a 92-year-old with a big brain tumor. And it was like, what are we doing exactly? Well, what do you think? that I had to tell them, absolutely not. We are not treating this. You know, it's, it, my father would never, never have wanted, didn't want that. I mean, we talked about it. it, it no way. He barely went to the doctor, <laughs> um, which is why the 92 ISIS. But in any case, um, but, but, you know, the system hasn't picked up on that. And the system still has a hard time talking to people. Doctors, it's still a difficult conversation to initiate. But I do think we're doing better. We're far from perfect, as I just mentioned. So it's kind of just like riff off this a little bit. Some of the stuff you talk about is how the government can kind of maybe take more risk in some of the research that it funds. We have the cancer moonshot now happening. And on, on the flip side there, you know, there's a lot of people, especially on the pharma side that are saying with things like the Inflation Reduction Act, actually, the government is kind of the impeding progress now. So if you I mean, as obviously as a person who's very well versed in how the government works, as well as kind of how um, innovation in this country works, like, how would you think about like the way the government should interact with research, private enterprise, etc, to maybe take more risky bets, especially maybe at a time where the public is not super receptive to the government taking high risk, high reward steps in, in research or innovation generally? Well, uh, <laughs> you've got two different questions there. One is, how do we think about more clinical research and things like that? The big bottleneck in advances and certainly related to the cancer moonshot is getting trials done, getting people to enroll in clinical research. And I think the COVID experience highlighted that difficulty. We've had two in the United States with all our $50 billion a year going to the NIH. We had two breakthroughs. One breakthrough was we did the Moderna trial pretty rapidly, collaboration between the NIH and Moderna. And then we did remdesivir. Beyond that, we didn't do a lot. And the British were much faster and much better at doing clinical research. They had a better infrastructure. And within 100 days, they had shown that steroids, 
vastly reduced mortality and many other interventions were worthless, including hydroxychloroquine. So they actually had a much better research enterprise. Our clinical research enterprise is broken. Early on, I suggested that every patient who turns positive with COVID ought to be offered a clinical research trial. We ought to be trying all sorts of drugs and everyone, you ought to call them up. We ought to have their, get their cell phone, text them. Would you want to learn about a clinical research trial for your condition? We didn't do that. And one of the problems is we're not going to have a valve, make as much advances as we want, because it takes so long to enroll people in clinical research trials. And that's the big bottleneck. And that's something we have to solve. Now, 90% of the clinical research trials are being done by pharma. Many, many important clinical research trials are not being done because pharma is not interested in doing them, comparing drugs comparing drug regimens and things like that. And that's a serious problem. And that, I think, is the NIH has backed away from clinical research. I've made suggestions about how we might think about solving that. You know, one of the things I've argued is, look, the NIH is sending out $50 billion a year to academic centers. Why don't you bring the heads of those centers, define an area we're going to look, we're going to try to do better on Rheumatoid arthritis, I don't know what it is. Come with your best ideas. We're going to debate them. We're going to pick the top ideas. And you all, for getting all the money you get, are going to have to enroll in these clinical research trials. That is part of what happens. And if you don't, we're going to reduce what's called the indirects. That's the money on top of the grants that the government gives for all the keeping the lights on, handling the the uh, animals and all of that. I think we need to get people to understand this is serious and they need to participate. And that's just part of the game. We didn't do that. And I, I think we missed a major opportunity to redo the clinical research structure in this country. And I think that's a bad mistake. So what do you think prevents that from happening in like, you know, in, in conditions like oncology or arthritis, you know, it feels like you know, researchers that academics would be incentivized to put forward their best ideas that like academics would try to enroll folks in trials. Like what, what's like not working here? So step back. If I worked at a cancer center, right? I'm a faculty member. What's my interest? My interest publishing. is two things. That's right. Publishing on the way to getting tenure and getting grants, Right. Enrolling my patient in your clinical research trial where your clinical research trial is being done out of some other institution or I have zero interest in advancing my career, Zippo. Now, I am in private practice. What's my interest in getting you patient onto a clinical research trial at, you know, academic institution Y, where academic institution Y is now going to provide you care and I'm not going to get the billings for this? Hmm. Where are the incentives? They're all misaligned. And one of the things that has to be made clear, I think, to both people in private practice and people in academic centers is contributing to this pool of more research. That's something we all have to do and we all benefit from, even if each individual person. So the way to do that is to get the deans to understand that their money from the NIH depends upon their faculty's enrollment in trials so that part of the faculty evaluation for tenure is, you know what, how well did you enroll in this national trial? 
That's a very that's, you've got to change the incentive <laughs> structure. That that always seems to be the answer in uh, in healthcare. <laughs> yes, change the. I mean, what's interesting here is it's not solely about the money, right? It's about fame. social capital. It's about. This yeah, is like, I think this exactly. is one of the conversations that was coming up with all the Alzheimer's drugs too, right? It's that all of the research basically ended up focusing on one or two hypotheses because everyone sort of just wanted totally to get published, in, right? And those were the predominant hypotheses at the time. Yep. As someone who worked at a clinical trial startup, I can say that the idea of trying to do enrollments every single time someone got sick on different therapies, etc., sounds like an operational nightmare but i i do appreciate the the ethos behind it i'm curious if you have well but wait a second wait a second you know the fact is it is operationally complex but deploying a trial at hundreds of sites trying just to get enough patients and then enough diversity of patients it's not as if that isn't organizationally complex the costs are you know we've got multiple you know you've got the pharma companies you've got the cro's they hire now you've got a lot of startups trying to you know data mine to find qualified patients that goes to another topic which differentiates america from the uk and that is trial philosophy we design trials with very very narrow right inclusion criteria you know you're over 65 you have comorbidity get out of the way. We don't want you in this trial because it might make it harder to get FDA approval, right? The British have a, you know, open the spigot wide, make these very simple, large trials and, you know, all the comorbidity and stuff will go out in the wash and a simple large trial will be easier to accrue, especially for private practitioners or others. I think that's a much better philosophy than ours uh, which is much, much more restrictive. Well, we we have tried some stuff like that with all of us and all of that kind of stuff, right? Or at least that seems to be where we're attempting to move towards. It, it does seem like there are some hiccups in, yeah. in, in that process, though. I wonder how much this is because hospitals kind of are not under like one centralized EMR slash are not uh, operated by the government makes this much dif- more difficult to pull off here. Yeah, well, also that pharma makes all their money in the U.S., right? So, like, th- that's where they need to nail the trial. Um, and then the U.K. can do their nice public health research after. <laughs> right. I mean, um, there's a problem in that, you know, the FDA, it, it is the bottleneck here. Yeah. No, super interesting. I mean, I think, you know, a- another area that you've been vocal about that we'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, I think every day, you know, Nikhil and I talk to physicians, we talk to companies, you know, I think there's obviously just this massive trend of, of labor burnout throughout the ecosystem right now. And it- it's really sobering. And-, and I guess, you know, you've talked about this before. I'm curious, like how you think about, you know, if you were, you know, a hospital executive, you know, in charge of uh, ma- waving a magic wand on the policy side, like, what can we actually do to make life better for, for clinicians and nurses? <laughs> Um, Solve it for us. <laughs> so so I, I, I am writing a piece on burnout, which I, I, I fear there may not be any good a journal for it. But think about what goes into burnout. And, and part of the problem, I think, is, you know, doctors, if you survey them, it turns out, what do they think will solve the burnout problem? Less work and uh, more money. I, I think those two explanations don't work at all. For one thing, the number of hours that doctors have worked have come down. You know, my dad 
you know, who I already mentioned, you know, used to work 70, 80 hours. He, his office was open till 9 p.m. on Mondays and Thursdays, two days a week, he worked till 9 p.m. And he was in a two-person group. So every other weekend he was on call. Was my dad fulfilled? Was he, there's no chance of burnout with my father. It's not just time. It's what the hell we're doing with time. And it's not money. You know, the number one profession in the top 1% doctors, you know, we, we get upset because we compare ourselves to, you know, people who make a you know gazillion dollars. And it's like that person, what I, they were in school with me. They're not smarter than me. So what the hell is, is uh, going on? You know, why should not? That's a relative social ranking problem. It's not a real dollar problem. So let's think about it. One is, I think seriously, doctors have lost a lot of autonomy. They're now working in big groups. They're being held. You know, how many RVUs are you billing? You know, what's your RAF score and all that? They're being second guessed by, you know, prior authorization through computers and all sorts of things. It's partially what they're doing with time, right? What was my dad doing with his time? Well, he wasn't typing notes in a computer. He was seeing patients and talking to parents because he was a pediatrician. That was clinically meaningful. What the problem is, is not how much time, but what the hell you're doing with your time. And it's becoming less clinically meaningful. So there's autonomy and less clinical engagement, clinical meaning in your work. And I think there's also less social connection. One of the things that has happened in American society in general and medicine in particular is a decline in social interaction. So my dad used to do morning rounds at the hospital. No primary care doctor does that anymore. There are hospitalists for that, right? He'd go to the doctor lounge, he'd get his coffee, he'd get his donut or he'd get lunch, right? And what would he do? He would begin bitching with the other doctors, you know, just talking, <laughs> right? That kind of social interaction. And then he'd go to Grand Rounds or he'd go to M&Ms and, you know, he'd have social interaction. Turns out that's lost, right? We don't, docs don't, primary care docs don't go to the office anymore. They've lost that social interaction. They're, they're on a hamster wheel. And so a loss of autonomy, loss of uh, uh, clinical meaningfulness in what they're doing with their time and loss of social interaction. Those are the important things. We got to address those. Some of the things we can do are at the meso level, you know, how does hospitals or health systems increase social interaction? Another thing is maybe we need to pay doctors differently so that they're not doing all this prior authorization. They're not, you know, being held accountable for RVUs and RAF scores and things like that. We need to figure out how to fix the electronic health record so they're spend less time. You know, maybe it's scribes, maybe it's other things so that they spend less time interacting with a computer and more time interacting with patients. And then there are other things you can build around, like a lot of that inbox is crap, right? Get someone to screen that inbox. Or Anyway, th these are the things we need to begin thinking about. And I think, you know, we need to put uh, RVUs on friendship. Yoga, yoga, meditation, and all the stuff that is being propounded, not a good idea. You know, the, the one I was... Uh, my, one of my research assistants was at a medical school. I won't say which one. And it was advertised, you know, to, to come pet llamas to relieve your birth. <laughs> I wish I were joking. I'm not joking. And it was a prestige medical school. 
I have so, so many yeah. operational questions about that one too. <laughs> <laughs> I guess well, part of thing with the local zoo, it was it was all on the up and up. Yeah, another another good provider partnership. I guess you know one thing. I'm, I'm, I mean, certainly, like we can all agree that like EMR should be easier to use, and and that you know that seems like a win win for the system. I am curious because you obviously do a lot on the policy side. It seems like part of what's driven some of these of these changes as well is like there are real like you know policy considerations, right? Like there is you know, a productivity imperative in the system with a shortage of doctors, you know, there's also like, obviously we've all seen stats on kind of like variance in care and, you know, the impact that has on patients. And so to some extent, I'm not going to defend prior offs, but like at least that school of things is, is, is oh, meant no, to. No, 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 no. You know, don't, don't get me wrong. Prior off is there for a legitimate reason, which is doctors don't, doctors frequently don't do the right thing. Totally. And I guess like my, my broader question is I feel like when I hear people, you know, talk about like what your how your dad used to practice, I wonder like I feel like the way we're moving as a system is toward, you know, more like specialization or like do the 10,000 hours of the same thing and maybe less of like this broader, you know, treat every kind of patient, you know, type environment. And so I'm wondering, I guess, overall, like, you know, how you think about, you know, going forward, like, to what extent can you avoid some of this stuff? I mean, it feels like part of, of the trends we're talking about here are like inevitable as we evolve the system to like be more productive and higher quality as a whole. And then part of it obviously is like the low hanging, like, yeah, Epic shouldn't be impossible to use. <laughs> I do think that, you know, for surgeons doing, we, we know that there's a volume quality relationship. The more you do, the higher your quality. Also turns out that usually the less time you actually spend in the OR, which saves money, the fewer complications you have, et cetera, et cetera. That's not universal. That's a trend, but it holds pretty well, actually, uh, in the data. And I do think, you know, doing more of that is, is you know, have people do high volumes is going to be really important. But I do think we need to rethink, and, and fortunately, in some areas it's happening, how much is the doctor have to do? How much does a nurse or nurse practitioner have to do? Can we get medical assistants or other people who aren't necessarily gone through all this time to do many things? And the answer is, of course, we just don't have a system that's going to permit it yet. And we're going to have to, you know, figure that one out a little bit more. Some of the Indian uh, focus factories have shown, you know, look, you don't need to go through all the, opto, you know, four years of med school, all the ophthalmology training to replace cataracts, just not necessary. I'll, I'll give my simple story on this. In 2010, I was in the awesome management budget and I had some oversight over our uh, global health assistance. And I was traveling to look at our programs in Africa. And one of the countries I went to was Mozambique. And in Mozambique, we were rolling out uh, male circumcision to reduce HIV AIDS transmission because it reduces it I think 50% now. So who were the people doing the circumcisions? Did they get MDs to do circumcisions on 13, 15-year-old boys? Absolutely not. They got seamstresses with two weeks of training, okay? They could do the sewing, all set. Now, we would never do that in the United States. But why exactly? Oh, you need a urology training to do that circumcision? Really? So, you know, that's our prejudice. And I'm just like everyone else. Believe me, if I had a son and needed a circumcision, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not letting, I'm not taking that son to the neighborhood uh, seamstress. Okay. The, mal, the, malpractice, the malpractice suits on that one would be just a, a, a crazy fun read. There are plenty of things, you know, yeah. especially as you point out, as we get things more 
protocolized, guideline-driven, that you don't need an MD to do. You can have screened by nurses and medical assistants who have an algorithm that they can follow. And for more complicated cases, kick it up. That will reduce a lot of burnout. It, it does seem like we sort of have some version of this in place too, right? With collaborative practice agreements and pharmacists and providing some sort of oversight. Anecdotally, what I've heard is that a lot of doctors are obviously very protective about like what who can do what. They are also very nervous about extending the risk of their license to other people. It's just, it's a defensive, I think it's just a place, comes from a place of defense, you know? Well, I think it comes from a place of money, but misplaced money. You know, <laughs> most doctors are overbooked, overworked as we, that's the whole burnout thing. Totally. We would like to displace work. But on the other hand, it's like, well, if you let them do this, uh, it's like <laughs> we get nervous about, yeah. you know, well, I'll lose money. Well, that seems stupid. <laughs> uh, and what's ironic to me is a lot of the most restrictive rules are in place in rural states and places that need more providers of any kind. You know, you're not going to solve the provider shortage in rural states by restricting what non-physician providers can do well we we we, i feel like we have to talk a little bit about the aca and our our listeners would get very upset if we had you as a guest and didn't talk about it um definitely Um, we asked this question to a lot of people who were generally involved in the aca we had bob kosher as well now that we've run the experiment for 10 plus years at this point curious like as you're looking back on it one what are some other underlying hypotheses you think were wrong or right now looking in retrospect? And are there things you would have done differently now as hindsight is 2020? The, uh, yeah, the answer is yes. So one of the things I think that's very interesting and hasn't been sort of broadcast loud enough is uh, you may remember in the 2008 presidential primaries, Obama versus Clinton, one of the things that happened was, you know, Clinton was, you're going to have a mandate and the exchanges and yada, yada. And Obama, to differentiate himself, said, well, we're not going to have a mandate. You know, it's not that people don't want health care. It's affordability. And I'm not mandating it. Most health economists and health policy types said, oh, you're going to have to mandate it. Not you can't do voluntary. One of the things we've learned by getting rid of the penalty on and the mandate But upping the subsidies is, guess what? It is price. (laughs) Obama did have a point. (laughs) And that, you know, if the the, the price of health care was really small, people would pile in. They want it. It, it, You don't need as much compulsion. You need compulsion when the price is big. (laughs) That's why we needed a mandate is because the price gap was high. So, you know, uh, higher subsidies actually goes a long way to getting people to buy insurance and take up insurance. So I think that's one of the things we have learned from this. I would say one of the biggest problems, the uh, two big problems, and I don't know that we could have solved them at that time, or at least solved one at that time. One is our system is just way too complicated. And it's become clear it's more, and that's at every level. But let me just talk about the getting insurance level, right? We added exchanges, all right? We already had Medicare, Medicaid, commercial insurance, uh, the individual market, plus assorted other things like, you know, 
federal employee health benefits, the postal system, union. I mean, it's complicated. And then we added more complication <laughs> with overlapping eligibility criteria. It's like, you know, who's the nutcase who designs this kind of thing only in America? So one of the things <laughs> I've become convinced is that we should, but I don't know that we could have gone backwards. One of the things that we could, should have done is made one giant exchange or marketplace for the people in the exchange, the people in Medicaid managed care, the people in Medicare Advantage, commercial, offer businesses. You can give your people a voucher, they can go into the exchange, or you can continue to provide health insurance. First of all, that exchange then begins to have tens, maybe more than 100 million people, which brings in a lot of healthy people and drives premiums down. Good idea, Georgie. Uh, So that's a, a real advantage. I think that's something the politics might not have been possible then, but I think it's something we should think about. You simplify, right? You either get your employer-sponsored insurance or you're in the exchange. And by the way, one of the choices you have if you're over 65 in the exchange is you can get traditional Medicare, okay? So you provide one and you really bring everyone in with the same package and then you can simplify the packages. One of the things they do in Germany where people can choose any sickness fund or especially in the Netherlands where they do have a managed competition thing is standardize the products. They do this in California very, very well. Peter Lee, when he took over the California, uh, covered California, standardized products, same deductibles, same co-pays, you know, so you've got a very standard, it's easy to make comparisons. I think that would help tremendously. And I think it's something we should move towards, but no one has stomach for doing that. The last thing I would say is we really need to change how we pay doctors. The fee-for-service system is terribly broken. But unless we make a concerted push. Now, when I was at OMB and we were doing the Affordable Care Act, I did call around to everyone. All right, we're going to, we have an opportunity to change doctors. What should we do? What do we know that is the best way to get them to really not overutilize, provide unnecessary care, to be more efficient, provide higher quality? We just didn't have the research. I did put into that, we put in ACOs because that was an idea. I put in bundle payments because we did have some evidence that bundles did align incentives so things would be better. Now we know a lot more. We know how to run capitation for primary care. We know bundles, far from perfect, far from perfect, but much better. And we need to rapidly move off the fee-for-service system. And I think doctors should want that because it'll get them largely off the hamster wheel. So those are three areas, I think. Again, I don't know that we could have done that differently in 2009 when we were designing the program. I do think we need to be need to do it, not uh, uh, need to make those kind of reforms. But there's no political, there, no political will to do that. There's political will to take on drug pricing. And you just saw the president again today, more, let's do more drugs, let's do them faster, not, you know, so many years on the market, et cetera, et cetera, because it's a good for money and the public is pissed off about drug pricing. But the idea that we would redesign the system again, there's no political will. And I'll tell you what did it, the loss, Democrats suffered in 2010, 2012, 2014, 2016 in Congress. I'm going to take this on. You've got to be nuts. And it's only, you know, it took till 2018 before it became a political winner for the Democrats. That's not something, you know, I'm related to a politician. 
not something politicians are going to do very frequently. Totally. No, I mean, I think a lot of what you're saying really resonates. Obviously, it's it's kind of hard to go in and out of Medicaid eligibility, you know, on it's exchanges, a, you, 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 you know. Uh, Let me just say something. I know a little something about healthcare, right? I turned, <laughs> I turned 65. I can't quite figure out, do I really want Medicare in it? But I'm working. <laughs> this Medicare thing work with my employer-sponsored insurance, right? It's not so easy to a, figure that out. We need a BuzzFeed out. quiz at the beginning that's like, tell us a little bit about your income and your age, and then they kind of randomize you to, you feel like, you know, this Disney princess or this Medicare Advantage plan. <laughs> No, absolutely fascinating. I mean, look, uh, I feel like we could we could talk to you for a while, but want to be re- respectful of your time. I guess we always like to end our interviews with a quick fire round where we ask you some some questions oh, and get no. your oh no, your, oh, yeah. don't worry. They, you, did this to me the last time someone did this to me. They saw that on on the not this bookshelf, a previous bookshelf behind me were all these space books. Why? Because my partner is the Apollo curator at the National Air and Space Museum, and they said, "Oh, we got a puff question for you. Who are your three <laughs> favorite astronauts?" I said, "That's a." Ask about <laughs> Medicare payments. Not, a, not no, they, they need to go. They, they have to take a simpler question. industry, you know. Yeah, I assume you tied it back. You were like Mark <laughs> Kelly because he votes on you know healthcare bills. That no, are, that are I helpful. said it was it was Neil Armstrong. <laughs> Pretty amazing guy, actually. Very amazing. Mike Collins, who's one, probably the the smartest and most friendly and re- real reflective astronaut. And then I said, uh, uh, Frank Borman, who did Apollo 8, that first one to circle the, the moon, but didn't land there because he was a man of just iron duty. He did. He, he went to space not because he was a space nut, or uh, he went to space because it was his national duty to promote America in the Cold War. I hope you gave those, <laughs> that's, ans- that's awesome. I hope you gave those answers yeah. on the podcast. That's pretty good. <laughs> I hope these are not retrospective. And, and anyway, <laughs> you know, one of the yeah. things I have to say, just to deviate here from healthcare, is Neil Armstrong, in the trainings, he was doing something in his, I think it was training to be in a plane was exploded. He had to eject and blub and landed and, you know, walked away. Okay. And he was back working that same afternoon. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had to eject from a plane that just exploded and, you know, I don't think I'd come back to the desk that afternoon. It takes a certain time. I mean, these test pilots are really different than you and I. I have to take a nap after I work out. Yeah. <laughs> only, only if I had to hit an RVU target. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, now, now I feel like our questions are, are super lame compared to you know favorite right, astronauts. We're, we're just going to ask you about healthcare. Uh, but we'll, uh, maybe, we'll, maybe Nikhil, take a take a look at the bookshelf there. See if you can find anything in the intro. I'm looking close. Um, yeah. I, <laughs> I guess our first question is, you know, we all kind of hear the same uh, themes bandied about at conferences and talks and whatnot. And I'm curious, like, you know, of these themes that are talked about often in digital health circles, one you think that's overhyped and one you think that's or under-hyped. health policy circles. Since you're uh, themes too. in digital health circles, overhyped and underhyped. Well, yeah, I, any any I, you, you're in a lot of circles. I think what AI and uh, and machine learning, you know, everyone's got their AI machine learning and no. Because the the real thing in healthcare is not, do I have the data? The real thing in healthcare is, I mean, data is important. Don't get me wrong. I'm a big data guy. I I like a lot of research. The big thing is, what are you going to do to change the patient trajectory? And we don't focus enough on that, it seems to me. I do think the future is out of the hospital, uh, remote patient, not monitoring, but management. 
And I, I think that hospital at home, better treatment at home, I think that is here, here to stay and going to be critical for the future. All right. Next question. So normally we ask people if they had a policy one to weigh what would they change, but that feels a little too simplistic for you. Maybe (laughs) as a different way to phrase this question, is there a policy or a law that you think got killed before it could actually kind of be implemented that you think would have actually very meaningfully changed healthcare or you would have liked to see come to fruition? Wow, that's a hard one. Um, like some people, like I think about like, here's, it goes back to a previous question. You asked, you know, I was one of the people who put in, uh, the patient centered outcome research Institute. I can just say terribly disappointed. We pumped plenty of money in there, not really performed very well. I'm hard pressed here is name something they've produced that has changed the way medicine is practiced for all that effort. Bupkis. On the other hand, CMMI has, you know, very slow start out of the gate. Not everything has worked. It's been a bit chaotic, but everyone agrees it's done some really important things. I wish that we had changed the ability to generalize that stuff. It's a very high threshold, getting the actuary to agree that it's going to save money because no one likes to agree to save money. And in general, those health economists that measure, well, how much is something going to cost and how much is it going to save? They always underestimate savings. Always, I say that's a little bit. They tend to underestimate savings and overestimate the cost. I was just looking here. It might surprise you. I have a sheet from 2000 oh, and came prepared from the CBO estimating healthcare projected spending, right? All, all the way to 2082, 75 <laughs> years, right? But you look at 2022 and their projected cost as a percent of GDP was roughly 23.5%. Healthcare would cost 23.5%. Let me tell you and your audience, we're spending 18% today of GDP. All right. That 5%, that's a whole lot of money. That tendency of the scorers to say, oh, it's going to cost, it's going to be more expensive and the savings are going to be less. Their predictions are not great in healthcare, And I think it's a mistake to rely, to give them all the power of generalizing a policy without having to go back to Congress. You got to put that report in the bookshelf, you know. That way, having made some of those models that, you know, predict 15 years out, it's like you tweak one little cell and then suddenly you're 15% of GDP. It's like unbelievable that that ends up influencing so much. No, this is fascinating. You know, I I guess our final question is, I feel like we had so many threads here. Listeners will definitely want to learn more about you. What's the best way for them to do that? And any, any kind of like places you'd point them? Three things. Okay. (laughs) I did write a memoir in 2013. Yeah, kind of interested in me and my brothers, not my professional life, but us growing up. Second, I do have a website and there's all sorts of nonsense there. I don't even know what's there anymore. And third, (laughs) um, I just put up a Coursera course a couple of months ago on Ben Franklin. And you want to know some of my avocational interests and learn about a great man. You can take uh, the Ben Franklin Coursera course and I'll add one more for your we didn't go into my love of chocolate and my making of chocolate, but it, <laughs> I, I, I make chocolate. And, I did not uh, know that. <laughs> you, you can buy it. You You're can, a real renaissance man. I had no seriously. idea. Well, I haven't told you about uh, the fact that we're about to start a cheese shop and I want to I want to learn how to uh, make honey. But 
you can buy a, a, a chocolate bar, the Zeke bar, and uh, put in the Zeke bar. The first few are alcohol places of which I have no relation. Find the chocolate, <laughs> find the chocolate one, and, and go there. And yes, so th- there's the fourth way yeah. of knowing more about the me. career plan. Bs are just getting crazier and crazier. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. To, I'm excited to try this chocolate. Same. <laughs> the, the disclaimer uh, is great too. I have no affiliation to the alcohol places. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, money, all that money goes to the good people who actually, you know, help me make the chocolate. I spend a week making the chocolate bar in Springfield, Missouri. It's it's hard work, man. I can, I can only work. imagine. And I, I can tell you, whatever you pay for that chocolate bar is not nearly as much as the labor. It's a really uh, making chocolates labor intensive. But, you know, it's also fascinating and interesting and you know you get to do different things and being a health policy commentator so great. you're definitely the first chocolate maker we've had on the, on the <laughs> this is exciting 100 <laughs> amazing awesome well thanks so much zeke really appreciate it